Thanks, Caitlin, and good evening, everyone. I'm Abby Phillip, and this is an extremely critical night in that search for the missing Titanic sub. The estimates have grown more dire. There are only seven to eight hours left of breathable air for the five on board. But the U.S. Coast Guard making it clear earlier today, this is 100% still a search and rescue mission. Every available asset is being put toward finding that vessel, and there is still hope. More mysterious banging-type noises have been picked up by sonar today. They were similar to the sounds that were picked up in the search efforts yesterday, but the Coast Guard still can't determine exactly what the source is. I can't tell you what the noises are, but what I can tell you is, and I think this is the most important point, we're searching where the noises are, and that's all we can do at this point. And that search has grown in the number of vessels on, and aircraft on the mission and in the size of the search area, now two times the size of Connecticut. But the focus is on an area 900 miles off the coast of Cape Cod, where this vessel was last believed to be on its search for the wreckage of the Titanic. It's called the Titan, but it is, exact, it is actually a very small uh, de- vessel, about the size of a minivan. And just to give you an idea of how close those quarters are, According to OceanGate's website, the total dimensions are 22 feet long, 9.2 feet wide, and 8 feet high. And it only has the capacity for five people, one pilot and four members of the crew. There are not any seats inside. It is the size and the shape of a cylinder. So passengers sit on the floor with their backs arched against the sides. You're looking there at a typical seating configuration for the people inside, And this here is a photo of the actual inside of the sub posted on OceanGate's site. So you can get a sense, a visual of just how much room or lack thereof that there is on board. Now, it is impossible to know what the experience of these passengers might be like right now. Oxygen is running out. The carbon dioxide levels are likely rising. And the threat of hypothermia is also growing. But those conditions are undoubtedly harrowing. Joining us now is CNN national correspondent Jason Carroll. He's in Boston. That is where some of the Coast Guard searches are based. So, Jason, what is the latest on this search? Well, when speaking to the Coast Guard and and listening in on their briefing earlier today, Abby, the Coast Guard has made it very clear that they are in close contact uh, with the families. And you can imagine how agonizing at this hour it must be for these families as they're waiting for some sort of word. Uh, A number of folks hanging their hopes on those noises that you talked about. The noises that uh, that we first got indication about them, that was yesterday uh, when this Canadian aircraft flying overhead had dropped these sonar buoys into the water and detected these banging sounds, the same banging sounds heard again today. So there is some hope there, but as you also heard, there is no confirmation in terms of exactly what these banging sounds are at this point. And so what they've done is they've taken that acoustic data, they've sent it to the U.S. Navy for analysis to get some sort of confirmation. Until that point, this is still very much a search and rescue mission, though time is clearly running out. Abby? It it very much is. Jason Carroll, thank you very much. 
And joining me now is retired U.S. Navy Captain Raymond Scott Chip McCord. He is also a senior lecturer at MIT. Uh, so, Captain McCord, first of all, the Canadian Coast Guard, they've said now that they've picked up these sounds. They're coming at intervals that are uh, very heartening to those who are searching for them. How would you use that observation to then locate the submersible? Well, I, I think the, they may have overstated the significance of those sounds. And we're very hopeful that that would be something from someone banging on the inside of the uh, submersible. But uh, I, I believe they also have said that they really don't understand what those sounds are. There's a lot of noise in the ocean. Yeah. The ship could be making, the Titanic could be making noise. Um, you would think if someone was pounding on the inside of the hull, they might be sending SOS signal and do it at a very uh, constant frequency uh, every 30 minutes, every 40 minutes, every hour. And so I don't I don't think they've got that type of information from mm. it. So if they do found find this submersible, what in your mind is the next step to recover it? Okay, so I, let me just say that it's really deep. And yeah. so it's really hard to get to. There's only very few uh, submersibles or machines in the world that can go down to that depth. And very few that can actually, if they can get down to that depth, that can actually work. So the first thing that we need to do is they need to find the submersible. And I know they're working very hard. Most likely the submersible is on the bottom of the ocean. It's not floating on the surface and it's probably not in the water column in between the bottom and the surface. If it was on the surface, most likely it would have been found by the intensive air and surface search that they've had going on, covering a very large area. Um, if it's on the bottom, it's probably much closer to the wreck of the Titanic. There's not a lot of current down there. Uh, it's it's dark. It's very cold. It's two and a half miles deep. Um, so for the Navy's ROV that can go down there and work, it's got 20,000 feet of cable. The ROV is the size of a cargo van. The uh, 20,000 feet of cable that's hooked to it is uh, about inch and a half to two inches in diameter. So that's on a big drum. Just think of that. That's, you know, three to four miles of this cable wrapped around a big drum. So that's a big piece of equipment. It's got its own crane that it comes with. It's got Connex box full of uh, control consoles and other uh, boxes full of spare parts for it. So it's a really big loadout. Takes a while to get on site. Takes a while to get onto the ship. Then it's got to be secured to the ship, welded on the deck. And it takes a while for that ship to transit out there. Yeah. Once it's on station, if they went, if and when they find the submersible, then they're able to put the ROV down and investigate the submersible, find out what kind of condition it's in, yeah. whether it's just lost electrical power, whether it's stuck under something, or whether it had a, a catastrophic uh, structural failure. Yeah, just an extraordinary number of steps there that you're describing. A very high wire act in this moment, given that time is definitely running uh, running low for these individuals. Captain Chip McCord, thank you very much for all of that insight. Thank you. And meantime, some families of Titanic victims are speaking out against this voyeurism, calling it 
disgusting. I want to bring in a husband and wife, Angelica Harris and John Locasio. Their uncles died on the Titanic. Angelica is also the author of a book, Titanic, The Brothers Paraccio. Both of you, thank you for joining us. John, I, I want to start with you. Uh, these uh, were your okay. uncles by by blood. Uh, they perished on the Titanic. And you've said in the past that you are disgusted by the tourism to this wreck. What is so upsetting to you about that? I compare it to looking inside a grave. I mean, people died there tragically, very tragically. Why make it a place for people to go see? Why why do you have to do that? Let the people rest. Their bodies are there or what's left of them. The ship is there or what's left of it. And it's just a peaceful sight there right now, or as peaceful as can be. Do you think that your uncles are being disrespected by this type of, I guess I could call it tourism? I would I would say, in my opinion, yeah, uh, I wouldn't. If I were them, if my soul was there, I wouldn't want people coming down to take a look at me. I, I, I don't feel that it would be a very comfortable situation to have people just looking and ogling. Yes, it, it makes no sense. And Angelica, these were your uncles, too, and you wrote this book uh, about the Titanic. How do you feel now about people wanting to go down there to see it? I mean, I'm sure there is an understandable level of fascination with it. But what do you think about this type of trip? See, I'm a bit different than my husband. Being an educator, I'm more on the, the cusp of if you're going to go down there, no, no, just revere the Titanic as a grave. Revere her as someone's, as, as a place where, you know, a loved one is. I mean, for us, it's our uncles who are our loved ones, but there are other, there are many other loved ones who are there. And it's obvious by the shoes that are being found in, and the jewelry and the plates that the artifacts have been brought up. I mean, but I mean, and that's exactly what it is. It's, if they're going to go down there, whether they're rich or whomever they are, they should be there to revere her in an educational way, to think about who these people were, why they lived, how they died. Because just by looking at Titanic, you could see the tragic and the violence. They died by violence. They didn't die um you know, they didn't die peacefully. It wasn't like they fell asleep and, and woke up the next day in heaven. I mean, I wrote a poem called Titanic Among the Among the Clouds, Angels Guide Thee Home. And I feel that that Titanic is in both in two places right now. She's in sand and silt in the sea, and she's also in heaven. And we must revere that as we must see that juxtaposition of where she is and cradle her. I mean, I, because I'm, because I'm a historian, um, I see it at a historian point of view, but I also see her as a beautiful, beautiful ship that once was. 
It's a fascinating piece of history for the world, but also certainly for your family as well. John and Angelica, thank you both for sharing that very fascinating perspective with us. Thank you. And we do have breaking news tonight in the Trump indictment, a new court filing just in that hints that there are multiple recordings of the former president. That's coming up next. Plus, a brand new headache for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, a Biden impeachment push from the hardliners within his own party. And Chris Wallace joins me live on what the speaker is warning his caucus behind closed doors. We have some breaking news tonight in the Trump indictment. Discovery is now officially underway. And in a new court filing, special counsel Jack Smith and his prosecutors hint that they have multiple recordings of the former president in that classified documents case. Let's bring in CNN's Caitlin Collins with more on this. Caitlin, uh, this is a significant first step, the first look of the defense at the evidence that the government has against them. What stands out to you here? Yeah, it's a pretty quick move, of course, by the judge here. And that is something that I was just talking to Governor Asa Hutchinson. He views it as a positive development because there have been questions about whether or not there would be significant delays in this trial. The ball has started rolling, at least when it comes to discovery. And of course, that is where they talk about the evidence that each of the sides is going to have here in this case. And what we're learning tonight from this new court filing, Abby, is that special counsel Jack Smith and his team have started turning over their evidence, what they have, uh, to Trump's team, to Trump's legal team. Now, of course, what we are told here is that this includes the non-classified stuff. That is going to be another entire challenge for them, essentially. But this includes things like witness transcripts of witnesses who went before the grand jury. It could give Trump's legal team an indication of who may be used uh, to potentially testify against him in that jury pool. Of course, we know essentially everyone in Mar-a-Lago has gone in and spoken before this grand jury, ranging from people who were working in the kitchen to maintenance workers to his closest aides. But what's interesting here and what we were noticing, our team, as we were looking at this, is they use the word plural when talking about interviews and recordings that they have of Trump, which they say were made at his consent. Of course, we know one of those was when Trump was speaking with people who were ghostwriting that book for Mark Meadows, and that's where he was talking about seemingly having a classified document in front of him. We don't yet know what these other recordings are. We don't know what's on them. We don't know how relevant they are. They are. It does say that they are made with Trump's consent. They could potentially even be public comments that he's made about declassifying and the declassification process, what he knows there. That's obviously been a big focus this week. And so it still remains to be seen what those are. But it is significant that now discovery has started in this, in this document's case. Yeah, I, that definitely jumps off the page here multiple recordings, and we don't know what they say, but the one that we do know about was a a fairly significant piece of evidence in that indictment. We have much more to learn on this. Caitlin, thank you so much for sticking with us for that. Tonight, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy facing another uprising inside of his own party and behind closed doors. He's trying to talk them off a ledge. Sources tell CNN that McCarthy is calling on House Republicans to vote against a resolution by Colorado Republican Lauren Boebert to impeach President Biden. The speaker telling reporters that it would be premature to move that way while investigations are still playing out. And I think to to prematurely bring something up like that, to have no background in it, 
it, it undercuts what we're doing in Comer's um, committee. We're finding something new every single day, what we're doing in Jim Jordan's committee as well. I think you have to have an investigation. I think at any time you take something this serious, you don't just flippantly put something on the floor. You follow the investigation wherever it takes you, and you follow that all the way through. You've talked. And joining me now on this is CNN anchor uh, Chris Wallace. He's the host of Who's Talking to Chris Wallace. So, Chris, uh, McCarthy there not ruling out impeachment per se, but he's saying basically not yet. We need more time. We need to do more digging. I was a little bit uh, surprised by how strongly that statement came. Do you think that he's under a lot of pressure to uh, cave on this? I don't know if Cave, but he's certainly under pressure. Uh, You know, this has happened with the Democrats, too. In 2017, in the first year of Donald Trump, uh, Representative Al Green of Texas filed a privilege resolution. When you file a privilege resolution, it means it comes to the floor and there has to be a vote on it. He wanted to impeach Trump. Uh, And and again, there'd been no investigation. There had been, uh, frankly, although obviously there are things that people don't like, there really hadn't been anything that had risen to the level of a high crime and misdemeanor. Uh, So it was sort of like verdict today, trial tomorrow. And Nancy Pelosi did what Kevin McCarthy is going to do, which is they brought it to the floor and they tabled it, which isn't really a vote for or against it. It just basically says we're going to put it on the side and it dies a slow death there. And that's what uh, Kevin McCarthy is saying here. I will say though, you know, impeachment used to be kind of, uh, yes, it had happened twice in our history, but uh, you know, prior to the Trump administration, uh, it, it was kind of something that was unimaginable and then it happened very quickly in two years with Donald Trump. And I think a lot of Republicans, particularly on the right wing came in really looking for payback right from the start. You, you impeached our president, we're going to impeach your president, even though, as Kevin McCarthy said, it hasn't gone to a committee. And in fact, what is the high crime and misdemeanor? Boebert says it's the failure to enforce the border, but, uh, you know, th- th- that, that's, I mean, it's kind of a stretch. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds like a policy difference, not uh, a, me- a real reason to impeach. And, and to your point, uh, Kevin McCarthy, according to sources, is warning his own party that moving to impeach could actually cost them politically, could cost them their narrow majority. What do you think? Does he have a point? Absolutely. I mean, remember, they've got a five-vote majority. They can lose four votes, and, and, but if, if they lose five votes, uh, they're in the minority. And, and, you know, what often happens when a party takes over is that they overreach. And the idea that you're going to overreach and, and actually try to bring impeachment against uh, the, the Joe Biden, it could be a lot of th- reasons that people don't like Joe Biden. Even a lot of Democrats don't like Joe Biden. But the idea that he's committed high crimes and misdemeanors is a, is a real overreach. And if they keep pressing this, you can you could understand where some people on the on the you know on the margins independent voters would say these guys aren't grown up enough to govern yeah especially when uh, real really the issue at hand for most voters is their quality of life frankly but you know chris to, to what kevin mccarthy was saying earlier he's basically saying let the investigations play out with james comer and jim jordan etc and also today on capitol hill the other special counsel john durham he was there to defend his investigations into the origins of the russia investigation uh, it was a to be expected deeply partisan hearing i just want you to take a listen to that. 
As we said in the report, um, our findings were sobering. At no time and in no sense did we act with a purpose to further partisan or political ends to the extent that somebody suggests otherwise that's simply untrue and offensive. How many cases did you bring to trial? Two. Two. And in how many of those two cases did the juries vote to convict? Neither one. I think you let the country down and you are one of the barriers to the true accountability that we need. Do I get to respond to that or comment on that? Yeah. Well, I don't know if you've ever investigated a crime. Um, if you I don't know that you have. You didn't investigate these, Mr. Yeah. Durham. And you agree that Russia interfered in the 2016 election? I agree that there's um, substantial evidence to show that. So you think it's perfectly appropriate or, or maybe just ill-advised for a presidential campaign to secretly meet with a Russian delegation to get dirt on their opponent? You would merely say that's inadvisable? Yeah, if you're asking me what I do, it, I, don't, I hope I wouldn't do it. But it's, it was not illegal. Uh, it was... Is stupid, foolish, ill-advised. Mr. Trump has called Mr. Barr a gutless pig, a coward, and a rhino. Which of those is correct, which isn't? In my experience, none of those are correct. Do you believe the Department of Justice should be defunded? I don't believe the Department of Justice or the FBI should be defunded. I think there may be, ought to be some changes and, and, and the like, but defunded, no. You had a good reputation. That's why the two Democrats supported you. But the longer you hold on, to Mr. Barr and this report that Mr. Barr gave you as special counsel, your reputation will be damaged, as everybody's reputation who gets involved with Donald Trump is damaged. My uh, concern about my reputation is with uh, the people who I respect and my family and my Lord, and I'm perfectly comfortable with my reputation with them, sir. You know what really stands out there to me, Chris? He's taken the heat from Republicans and Democrats, which is really not, I think, what anybody expected at the end of this process. Well, uh, the question I have is why did Jim Jordan, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, call him up? Because if he thought he was going to score points against Democrats, he really didn't. Remember, Durham was appointed by Bill Barr during the Trump administration to investigate the investigators, basically to say, why did uh, they spend all these years, uh, both the FBI and then the special counsel, uh, investigating uh, the, the idea of collusion between the Trump campaign and, and uh, Russia, 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 as the former president calls it. Uh, it was not, uh, you know, he spent four years, he brought three cases, one minor uh, fella in the FBI pleaded guilty, uh, and, and the two big cases he brought to trial, uh, both uh, the men were found not guilty. They were acquitted. So it was not a, a terrifically successful enterprise. Uh, and, 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 you know, you not only heard the Democrats hammering him, but you also saw Matt Gates, uh, you know, a far-right Republican, uh, hammering him as well. I don't think it, it served any purpose for the Judiciary Committee. Sure didn't help John Durham. Although, to his credit, he came, he took the questions, he took the criticism, and sometimes that's really all we can ask of people, just to stand up for whatever they decided to do in the course of their work. So, Chris, uh, don't go anywhere. You just spoke to Senator Cory Booker about Hunter Biden's plea deal, and we've got to ask you about your interview with Harrison Ford, who's pushing back on the idea that he plays heroes. We'll have more on that next. Hunter Biden plea deal is sending political shockwaves this week, and CNN's Chris Wallace got a chance tonight to sit down with Democratic Senator Cory Booker and ask him what he thought about this news. 
Senator, did Hunter Biden get off easy? Look, you're talking to a guy who has seen the worst of the criminal justice system in America, where you see a two-tier system. If you're a congressperson, a senator, or a president, you can admit to using marijuana, but we are a nation that has been arresting young, low-income, black and brown people, uh, literally thousands in America who can't get jobs for doing things that four at least, or a few at least, former presidents have admitted to doing. So I'm a person that has a lot of suspicion about a justice system that I think is still working its way to be justice for all. So I don't know the particulars of this case. I have not followed the details. I imagine uh, that there were uh, prosecutors, a Trump-appointed prosecutor, uh, who, like many prosecutors, are going after it with vigor. And uh, they came to a plea deal. And uh, as far as I'm concerned in the work that I have to do, um, uh, I, I think justice has taken its course. You're talking about a, a two-tier system of rich and poor. I'm, I'm asking you, do you think that there's a two-tier system, a double standard for prosecuting Republicans and Democrats? I, I, absolutely not, um, especially the way that I think President Biden has tried to restore legitimacy uh, to the Justice Department. He hired somebody that had a lot of respect on both sides of the aisle and then stayed away from them. You do not see him out there uh, talking. And when Hunter Biden cooperated uh, with authorities, uh, clearly we do not see that in the case of Donald Trump right now. And Chris is back with me now. So what did you think of the senator's answer there? Well, uh, he, he, it's not going to convince Republicans who sure. are going to say Hunter Biden, the president's son, got off uh, easy, that he's not going to serve any jail time, that they found nothing illegal, apparently, in, in his business dealings in which he made a lot of money in the Ukraine and, uh, and China. Uh, but, I, you know, it's the argument from Democrats, which is that the, the Justice Department, there's every indication that Joe Biden has kept hands off the Justice Department Attorney General Merrick Garland. And Merrick Garland kept Donald Trump's U.S. attorney in Wilmington, Delaware, the one who conducted this investigation, kept him in here for over two years as, as he decided what he was going to do. And so it was Trump's appointed U.S. attorney who decided not to seek jail time and to accept a plea deal. Uh, from Hunter Biden. But uh, is that going to satisfy Republicans? Probably not. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, it's certainly not. But but I do think that his point about the two-tiered system of justice for all the rest of Americans is is worth a conversation because that is very real and perhaps more real than the political element here, considering there's just no comparison between what Trump is accused of and what Hunter Biden was, uh, you know, eventually charged with and pled to. But uh, on a lighter note, Chris, you, for your show this week, also spoke to Mr. Indiana Jones himself, Harrison Ford, and you asked him what it was like uh, to play a hero. What did he say to that? Well, I, actually, what I asked him was why um, he, he has made 70 films that have grossed more than $9 billion. He's one of the most popular actors in history. Of course, he's been in the Star Wars movies. He's been in now in five Indiana Jones movies. And I said that I had a theory, which was that uh, for all of his swashbuckling and his sense of humor and being a bit of a smart ass, which he pleaded guilty to, I said, I think the, the secret sauce for Harrison Ford is 
that he's vulnerable. And here was his response to that. I have always, I have been accused of playing heroes. I don't play heroes. I play a CIA man or a, or a doctor or, or whatever it is. But you cannot play a hero. You have to play your audience. You have to bring your audience into that moment. And what are the, what, what, and, and you want them to feel emotionally consistent with the characters because it's then, then we're not talking about the story. The audience is immersed in the story. It's, it, it, it's a whole different thing. And if you're playing a hero who can kind of slough off a terrible... I'm not playing a hero. I, no, I say, if you were... <laughs> yes. Then... Then I would have a cape, and well, I would have a lycra and, suit. And we, it, and we wouldn't feel as scared as we're supposed to feel in that thing, because it but wouldn't you, feel you as You might admire me for other reasons, you know? And maybe that's the way the, the, the culture has changed a little. It was such an interesting insight, Abby, into his craft. We, we played him a clip... Uh, from Clear and Present Danger, where he's playing Jack Ryan. We played a clip when he plays the president in Air Force One and shows real vulnerability. And I think that's the extraordinary thing, that it, he, he seems in a lot of these movies to be uh, a real person in living or experiencing unreal situations and feeling as scared and... Uh, as we think we would be if we were in those situations, but then overcoming them, and yes, in the end, being the hero. It's such a great observation about the nuances of what makes these superhero movies really great. It's it's actually the humanity of the character, not the way in which they are larger than life and more powerful than a regular person, but the emotional element of it that makes it great. That's so fascinating. I am really excited to watch the rest of that. He's such a fascinating person and actor, especially at this stage in his life, continuing to do this kind of work. It's pretty remarkable. Um, So, Chris, thank you so much. And be sure to check out Chris's full interview with Senator Cory Booker and Harrison Ford on Who's Talking to Chris Wallace Friday night at 10 p.m. on CNN and streaming on Max. And coming up next, an outburst in the courtroom today, just moments after the January 6th rioter who used a stun gun on Michael Fanone was sentenced to prison. Michael joins me live on what happened inside of that courtroom. On January 6th, he pushed a stun gun into the neck of D.C. police officer Michael Fanone while wearing a Make America Great Again hat. But today, Daniel Rodriguez learned that he is spending the next 12 years behind bars, but not before an outburst in the courtroom. Rodriguez attacked Officer Fanone after the pro-Trump mob dragged him into the crowd. You can see him falling to the ground in this video. He pleaded guilty, Rodriguez did, to four criminal counts back in February. And today, as he exited the courtroom, he shouted, Trump won, echoing the very lie that was at the root of the Capitol attack. The judge presiding over this case tore into the insurrectionist, calling his attack on Fanon a horrific assault. She added that while Rodriguez was trying to stop the peaceful transfer of power, Fanon was protecting the very foundation of democracy. And Michael Fanone himself joins me right now. Michael, um, what was it like to see 
the lack of repentance there inside of that courtroom today? I mean, I said in my testimony that, um, or my, my impact statement that, you know, Daniel Rodriguez really ceased to exist to me uh, as a person a long time ago. And that's how I've just detached myself from all of these assault cases. Um, but it was clear to me, as it has been in the uh, previous uh, criminal cases, that there is no remorse on behalf of the, uh, the defendants. What do you think about the sentence, 12 years? Is that sufficient? I thought it was appropriate. Uh, I mean, listen, I, I wear two hats in these uh, trials. You know, I've, um, I guess for lack of a better term, I'm a victim, uh, but I'm also a, uh, a law enforcement officer uh, who has 20 years of experience in dealing with uh, criminal cases. And I think that the 12 years was, uh, was appropriate. Yeah, and we, as we just talked about, uh, this guy, Rodriguez, repeated the, the very lie at the heart of January 6th. But I want you to listen to this. This was from former President Trump just a couple days ago. First of all, I won in 2020 by a lot, okay? You Let's know, get that straight. I won in 2020. You know that this, and if you look at all of the tapes, if you look at sure. everything that you want to look at, you take a look at Truth to Vote, where they have people stuffing the ballot boxes on tapes. It is 2023. He's running for president again. What do you feel and think hearing him repeat that lie again? I mean, it's outrageous. It's um, it pisses me off. Um, And at the same time, I recognize the uh, the dangerousness um, uh, and the influence that Donald Trump carries and what people are willing to do. Uh, on his behalf. Uh, We talked off air uh, just a few minutes ago and and discussed about, you know, whether or not I feel that, uh, you know, we're in a worse place now than we were on January 6th. And I think that that's um, abundantly clear. What do you think ought to happen when it comes to Trump? As you know, he is also facing an investigation into his role in January 6th. What do you think needs to happen there uh, all these years after what physically happened to you, the brutal assault that you experienced? Well, that I mean, that's really at the heart of why I spoke up um, and and agreed to testify before the select committee uh, in Congress was that I felt that the uh, Justice Department was not doing enough. Uh, to investigate the former president's role in January 6th. And I, I feel as though, um, you know, after reading a recent Washington Post article, uh, which declared exactly that, that there was a reluctance in the Department of Justice and, uh, you know, the FBI under Director Ray to pursue uh, any type of investigation into Donald Trump um, and his supporters uh, for January 6th. And I think that, you know, like I've said many times, the rule of law should mean something. It meant something to me as a police officer. Uh, and that's that no one in this country is above the law, regardless of their political persuasion or position uh, or how much wealth that they have uh, amassed. All right. Michael Fanone, thank you, as always, for joining us. Um, and for what you did that day uh, in the service, as the judge said, of American democracy. Thank you.
And coming up next on CNN Tonight, a new report shows that community college graduates can actually make a lot more money than their peers graduating with four-year degrees. Mike Rowe of Dirty Jobs fame joins Allison in the next hour. But first, misinformation coming from both sides of the political aisle. Is the media ignoring RFK Jr.'s baseless conspiracies as he challenges President Biden? We'll discuss that next. He's been called dangerous. His own siblings say he's, quote, complicit in sowing distrust of the science behind vaccines. And now Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is asking Americans to let him run the country as president while he spreads those baseless claims. But the question are some parts of the media going soft when it comes to challenging these conspiracy theories. RFK Jr. is best known for spreading the vaccine misinformation, including this debunked claim that vaccines cause autism. But it is also worth noting that his baseless conspiracies go far beyond vaccines. And here is just a taste of it. Without evidence, he says that China and the U.S. are developing race-based bioweapons. Without evidence, he claims that COVID-19 was genetically engineered as a bioweapon. Without evidence, he claims that 5G technology is being used to, quote, harvest our data and control our behavior. Without evidence, he claimed mass shootings are linked to prescription drugs. Without evidence, he claimed the 2004 presidential election was stolen. Without evidence, he says that the U.S. may be plotting to assassinate him. That's a lot. So let's bring in senior media reporter at CNN here, Oliver Darcy and Eric Deegans. He's the author of Race Bader and a TV critic for NPR. So, Oliver, um, you raised this uh, very wisely in your newsletter this week that everyone should read, of course. One of the reasons that this is an important topic is because of where RFK Jr. is in this presidential process. Look at this poll from CNN. Biden's at 60 percent and Kennedy is at 20 percent. I mean, maybe a lot of this is name recognition, but how should we be covering him? Well, Abby, I think one uh, when you uh, when you're thinking about covering a conspiracy theorist, someone like him, uh, you need to first evaluate whether they're worth the coverage, because often conspiracy theories or theorists thrive uh, when they're getting a lot of media attention. And if you do determine they are worth the coverage, I think it's important to be direct, to be clear with audiences about their beliefs. A lot of people in the media class, they follow RFK Jr. They know how delusional some of his ideas are, uh, but to everyday Americans, he might just be a Kennedy. And so if the uh, news, the, the press is not relaying some of the things that you just went through to audiences, I don't think they're getting a clear picture of who he is and how unhinged from reality some of his ideas are. Yeah. I mean, I think that it is not sufficient to call him, frankly, a vaccine skeptic. Eric, I, how do you think this balance should be struck in the media and how this these lies and misinformation are covered? Well, I think this is a difficult situation because I think the audience assumes that if there was absolutely no merit to what he was saying, then the media wouldn't be covering it. <laughs> and so uh, even when, uh, you know, media outlets uh, cover him and try to explain how, um, you know, out of line his views are and how, um, you know, um, un, 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 unmoored in data or reality or facts they are, 
the fact that they're paying attention to him gives him an imprimatur that I think is hard to overcome. And this is something that all kinds of media outlets have experienced with other people. Uh, for example, Donald Trump. It's, it's hard to handle Donald Trump's misinformation when you're training a camera on him and talking about him for hours and hours in a day. And, and, and so, uh, you know, my question is, why is he being covered at all? Uh, and if he's being covered, uh, why aren't we asking the tough question? Why are so many people, um, you know, willing to admit that this guy might might be a good candidate for president? Maybe that's the question we should be asking. But uh, but if you bring him on television and you explore his views and try to, to to debunk them, what you find is that just giving him that interview gives him more um, um, more exposure than perhaps he should have. And Oliver, you've used actually Alex Jones, another very well-known and popular conspiracy theorist, as an example of where the media gets this right in some ways. How so? Yeah, the media is very clear-eyed with audiences about who Alex Jones is. I mean, there won't be a story that's published or an interview that runs that does not call him a right-wing conspiracy theorist, someone who has trafficked in insane delusions. Uh, but when it comes to people like RFK Jr., a Kennedy, or other prominent officials in government who do traffic in a lot of conspiracy theories and outright lies, I think there's this hesitation um, to, to call them out and to call them for what they are, even though they are... Um, really uh, peddling a lot of the same uh, delusions that someone like Alex Jones is. I, it's just, I think, much more difficult for the press and, and, and frankly, uncomfortable for them to call a prominent government official or a Kennedy a conspiracy theorist, someone who is peddling lies to the American public. But frankly, because of their respected prominent positions in society, it really warrants uh, that kind of coverage so people understand exactly who these people are. And the press is direct with them about this instead of really just beating around the bush uh, with watered down language. Yeah. And, and Eric, you know, you know uh, one thing I would say uh, about covering someone like Alex Jones is that a lot of the coverage that he's gotten recently has been about controversies connected to negative allegations about him. Uh, the media isn't going to Alex Jones and asking him what he thinks about vaccines or asking him what he thinks about politics. They're doing stories about him getting sued uh, for what he said about the Sandy Hook uh, massacre, which is a, a different thing. It's easier to cover someone who's mired in controversy where the story is about uh, all the negative things that are being said about that person. It's harder to interview someone who is running for office but is saying a lot of things that are unhinged and, and not moored in, in reality or facts. Yeah. Oliver and Eric, uh, thank you for that. I, I'm sure we'll be talking quite a lot about this as we go into this next cycle. Thank you both. Thank you. And before we go, two of the most controversial Republicans in Congress had a profane exchange on the House floor today. The feud was between Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. It was caught on camera. You can see them chatting there. And it led to a lot of questions. There was reporting that the word, and pardon my language here, or the phrase, little bitch, was thrown around. When asked about it by reporters earlier today, Green said this. Daily Beast story about you calling her an expletive accurate? I will not confirm or deny. And Lauren Boebert said this. Yeah, I'm not in middle school. So what happened? 
Well, Green's spokesperson has now confirmed tonight that the Georgia Republican did, in fact, use that language with her colleague while accusing Boebert of, get this, copying her articles of impeachment against President Biden. And with that, thank you for joining us. CNN's Allison Camerata starts right now. I did see that movie in middle school. That rings a bell, yes. Yeah, a little bit more profane than my middle school experience, but sure. <laughs> well, that is, I'm, I'm happy for you because nobody needs to hear that. <laughs> Thank you very much, Abby. Great to see you. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. The search is still going on at this hour for that submersible that went missing Sunday with five people on board. Rescuers spent the day scouring an area twice the size of Connecticut after hearing banging sounds this morning. The Coast Guard says they remain hopeful, but of course, the odds are getting steeper. Five people trapped underwater in the dark and freezing cold with oxygen running low. In just a moment, I'll speak with a man who was scheduled to be on that excursion, but canceled his trip over safety concerns. One of his friends, though, is on board. Plus, in political news, Donald Trump is the GOP frontrunner for 2024, of course, but Chris Christie is trying to change that. We'll show you how Christie's radical honesty approach is working. And can he convince fellow Republicans to do the same? My panel has thoughts. But let's begin with the ongoing mission to save five people trapped on board that missing submersible somewhere in the North Atlantic. CNN's Jason Carroll is live in Boston, where some of the Coast Guard searchers are based. Jason, what does this search look like at this hour? Well, the uh, Boston uh, Coast Guard has, the Coast Guard here in Boston has made it very clear, Allison, that this is still very much a search and rescue mission. They want to make that very, very clear. Uh, but, you know, there are some headways here. I mean, you know, you're talking about the timing here. Uh, the time is most definitely running out. That's first and foremost. But, you know, family members, uh, those who've been watching this uh, for, for, quite a long period of time now, are hanging their hopes on some of those noises, those noises that were detected. You remember first detected yesterday when you had this research plane, this Canadian research plane flying over the area, dropped a sonar buoy down, and then these so-called banging noises were, te- were detected. That was yesterday. Again today, when speaking to the Coast Guard, they're telling us more of these noises were found. And when I asked the Coast Guard, the head of the Coast Guard out here, uh, the captain, I said, well, what more can you tell us about these noises. And he said, look, we just want to make it very, very clear that we don't know what the noises are. And so what they've done is they've taken all that acoustic data, they've sent it to the U.S. Navy for analysis. And so once they get back that analysis, they'll have a greater sense of what those banging noises are. But you talk to the experts and they'll tell you, look, those, these noises could be any number of things. I mean, the, the ocean is a, is a noisy place. It could be sea life. It could be the titanic metal settling. It could be other vessels that are out there. So these are some of the dynamics that they're looking at. But uh, because they have detected some of these, these noises, these so-called banging noises, they've sent extra resources into that particular area where they're searching. What do those resources look like? Well, we're talking about some of these remote uh, operated vehicles, ROVs, which are uh, manned with cameras so they can go below the surface and search at deeper depths. So those are being um, taken into the area. But once again, uh, time now running out. We're looking at less than 10 hours by some estimates in terms of how much oxygen might be left there 
on board. But again, the Coast Guard making it very, very clear this is still a search and rescue mission, and they're sending all resources into the area. Still a little bit of hope. So, Jason, tell us about this company, Ocean Gate, that's behind this excursion, because we've learned that they faced a series of legal issues before this particular excursion, both from customers and from former employees. So what do you know about that? Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, there were allegations from previous customers uh, that they had some of their planned trips that were canceled because of either mechanical reasons, because of weather. So there were some lawsuits involved there. Also particularly troubling, Allison, when you think of what happened uh, from two former employees from OceanGate who had allegedly raised concerns about the integrity, the thickness of the hull of the particular craft that we're talking about, this particular uh, vessel. Uh, So apparently there was some additional testing of the vessel since the employees left in 2017 and in 2018. So it's not clear if these particular issues were addressed, but these issues were most clearly raised by two former employees at OceanGate. So some troubling signs from the past. OceanGate would clearly tell you that these were issues that were addressed, but nonetheless, these were issues that were out there in the past. Jason, thank you very much for all of the reporting from the scene in Boston there. Now let's go to Tom Foreman at the Magic Wall to explain what is involved as this search intensifies. So Tom, we understand so many different assets are being used to search Mm -hmm. here. What does each one do? Well, you know, our team out there, Jason and all the others, have done a great job keeping track of all of this. We know about the air support out there, things like the Poseidon, capable of scanning for submarines, that's above the, the water, obviously. The ships up there on top of the water, all of them have some ability to reach in and figure out what's going on below the water. But when you start getting really deep, you start talking more about things like this, these probes that they can drop down that can listen for things going on. And particularly if you start talking about things like side scan radar, then they're able to go down and actually take sonar pictures of the bottom of this. You may remember this from the... Uh, a Malaysian air flight that became lost and all the searching there. They use this type of thing there. What can you do with this? Well, if you can get pictures in this manner, then you can say, well, we do identify something here, and it helps you actually go after a target. How good can these pictures be? Well, sometimes they can be really quite astonishing. They can show a lot of details in areas I've looked for other things before. None of the pictures we're showing of this is from this site, by the way. If that happens, then you go back up, and that's when you start going to the robotic devices we're talking about. For example, from France, the Victor 6000, very deep diving. This can go to about 20,000 feet. It's a remarkable uh, craft. It's got robotic arms on it. It could cut loose this sub if they found it down there and it's hung up in some way. It can take a line down to it to hook it to be pulled up. It can shoot video of it. This can do remarkable work, but, but, really important here, It can only do that work if it knows where to go to do that work. And we're not to that point yet. We still don't know where this submersible is at this point. If it's intact, we just don't know any of that information. And everything that I have described here takes time. And that's what is running out. There's just so much ocean out there. And this is such a small craft. And it's in this three-dimensional environment. Uh, It is... Just a tremendous, tremendous challenge. Good on them for getting all these extraordinary assets out there to do this. They're all, though, poised for that moment when one of them figures out where it is 
And then the race is on to see if these dwindling hours, if they can save the people there, if they are still surviving. Tom, it's remarkable to see the amount of energy and people and resources and equipment that's being devoted to finding these five people. Yeah, it's remarkable. And it's because they know this is one of the great engineering and rescue challenges on the planet. This is one of the hardest possible things to do. And they're trying to do it with all of these assets. Thank you for explaining all of that, Tom. You're welcome. Chris Brown is a digital marketing tycoon who is friends with the British billionaire Hamish Harding, one of the five people on the vessel right now. Chris, thank you very much for being here. I know it's been an incredibly nerve-wracking few days for all of the missing people's family and friends. How are you feeling at this hour? Um, It's... Uh, absolutely devastated. Um, all my thoughts stay with the families um, and friends of those who are missing, and of course, um, just holding out all any hope that's left for for those that are, are underwater. Really hope they can still still pull this off. Tell us about Hamish. How, I know that you you two have been on other expeditions, etc., together. So tell us about your history. Uh, yes, I met uh, Hamish on a trip to the South Pole with Buzz Aldrin, actually, in 2016. Um, he's an extremely amiable uh, man, won't be flustered by his situation. He'll be the calming influence on people around him. Um, he's fiercely intellectual, so I, I can imagine he's sitting there going through all permutations and combinations of what could be done to help the situation. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it was his idea to be doing the the banging two minute intervals to distinguish it from random noise um, at a timed interval that seems to indicate that there's humans uh, making that noise. How risky was this? How risky is this type of expedition? Uh, without a doubt, it's risky. You know, three thousand eight hundred meters is very deep. If you bear in mind that most um, military submarines only go down to 1,000 meters, uh, the the pressures and temperatures down there are, are, are quite foreboding. Yeah. And why would Hamish have wanted to take this risk? Um, the I think you'll agree that the Titanic is an iconic wreck. Um, there's a lot of history there. The fact that it was missing for so long um, the original expedition uh, objectives were to go down and to do a 3D scan of the Titanic um, using the Ocean Gate submersible um, so that that could then be compared to another scan a few years later to see what parts were decaying um, so that the, the, uh, the wreck could be preserved. Yeah. And so I know that you had paid a deposit to go on this expedition and you had wanted to at one point, but then you pulled out. What, why did you have cold feet about this? Um, the, the deposit was staged. There was a couple of milestones. So once they hit the first milestone, you paid a bit more deposit. Once they hit the second milestone, they paid, paid a bit more. Um, they constantly missed those milestones, which were quite um, simple to hit in my view. By the second milestone at the end of 2018, they still hadn't got the sub down below 300 meters. Bear in mind that aiming for 3,800. Um, there were a few other things that brought up the issue of certification with with the uh, with the company, and it became obvious that they 
to, it became obvious to me that they didn't seem to want to get certification that they were going to call this an experimental sub um, and not certified for one dive, let alone multiple dives. Um, that was outside of my risk envelope. Also, some of the parts that were being used seemed to be, to me, to be off the shelf, um, maybe not ideal for the situation. Didn't like the uh, small thruster motors on the outside and the cabling. Putting all of those things together, I just thought this is a, a risk that's outside of my uh, control. And uh, it's one that I, I don't think uh, I wish to take. Yeah, you're not alone. I mean, obviously, I'm sure you've heard the reports that there have been some employees who had spoken out about their own safety concerns. What do you think happened, Chris? Oh, I, I, I wouldn't want to get into speculation here. Um, I mean, still, the ideal situation is that they come up to the surface and are bobbing around because it, it wouldn't it, it wouldn't sit above the, the sea level. It would just be bobbing below the surface. Um, that's the ideal situation that it could be found within the next few hours, uh, next next 24 hours. It still needs to be open from outside, which, again, in my view, is another design flaw. Um, it could be snagged on. It could be snagged on the the Titanic wreck. It could have just dropped to the bottom of the ocean. We don't really know what the situation is. Uh, I wouldn't want to get into speculation. It, it, it's not fair on the family and friends of those who are involved to speculate on these things. And I think also, you know, the, the blame and and why and why's and wherefores. We've got to leave this. Um, our thoughts have to be with those who were trapped and their their close families. Understood. And uh, we are praying for them. Um, Chris, thank you. We really appreciate your expertise and your personal experience, certainly um, with Hamish, about all of this. Um, thank you for talking to us. Thank you. My pleasure. As Chris just told us, he is still, of course, hopeful that his friend and the other passengers will be rescued. So how can searchers do that? Navy Diver is going to tell us next. The search and rescue mission for that missing sub covers an area twice the size of Connecticut and includes dozens of vessels and divers. Joining me now is Rick Armstrong, a former Navy master diver. Rick, thank you so much for being here. Just help us understand how this works and the role of divers. How can you, as a diver, help search for something the size of a minivan in you know, the vast darkness of the ocean? Well, this operation is, is now being uh, operated with remote-operated vehicles. This is way too deep for divers. Uh, you know, saturation divers, you know, have gone to 2,000 feet. You're talking about almost 13,000 foot of water. Uh, so now you're using high-tech robots, uh, sonar, uh, plus the surface area you're, you're searching. Uh, it's a huge area and deep, deep waters. Uh, this is uh, extremely dangerous. Uh, you know, not only for the individuals that are in the submersible, but also the, the individuals. These are very expensive machines that are going down to, to, to locate this uh, submersible in, in a rapid manner because the time is of the essence right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, we've been told mm-hmm. that, that, you know, that, I mean, basically the best estimates are that they have um, just several hours left of oxygen. And so is there a role for divers right now, or is this all being done from the surface with remote-operated vehicles? At the moment, it's being done with remote-operated vehicles. Uh, should they be able to locate uh, the vessel and bring it to a depth where divers could go in and help rig it and, and, 
get it ready to bring up and over safely, uh, they would probably use divers at that point. But it wouldn't be, uh, there's no way they can go to that depth. Yeah. Uh, the ROVs that they're using, though, are pretty high-tech. These are very, very complex machines that, you know, work on oil rigs and cables underwater, deep depths. Um, they're very proficient at it, the people that are working. They've mustered some of the best in the business right now out into this area to help rescue these people. So, Rick, as you know, um, one of the hopeful signs was that yesterday they heard some banging, what sounded like strategic banging, I mean, the way it was described, at sort of half an hour intervals, which seemed as though somebody might have been, might have been man-made banging. And then they heard it again this morning. That is a, that is a very encouraging sign that that somebody is taking the time. Like you said, it's intermittent. It's not constant. Uh, It's not something just banging against the hull. It's somebody possibly uh, signaling from inside the hull. Uh, If they could possibly triangulate that with sonar and give those guys an area, a smaller area to search, that would help them a lot. Uh, but here again, you know, time is running out and uh, those individuals are under a lot of stress. Do you think rescue is still possible? There's always hope. Uh, and, you know, when they rescued the kids from the caves uh, in Thailand, uh, you know, people had not given up hope, but they kept trying and they eventually found them. That, that different scenario here, folks are, uh, you know, in deep depths. And like the individual in the last segment said, they may be on the surface, just below the surface. Uh, where planes can't really see them. Um, it, it, this is a, if, if they actually find these folks and bring them to the surface, this will be one of the greatest, greatest rescues uh, in history. Uh, I've thought you know. so, like, like you, Rick, I've thought so much about those Thai kids in the cave because that too was considered almost impossible. I mean, the Herculean effort that was going to be, and the ingenuity that nobody knew how to get into that, you know, flooded cave and, and they figured out how to do it. And I've thought about them during this in that very same way. But, but just last, what you were saying, as Chris was saying in the, last, in the last segment, it's not that this submersible floats on top of the water, right? It, it, maybe it's just underneath the surface. And it's, and it's painted white and your, your, your uh, wave caps are white. I mean, there, there's many scenarios here. It could be on the bottom. Uh, if that's the case, if it's hung up in the wreck, and they could get to it, they can cut it away and bring it to the surface. If it's on the bottom amongst the wreckage itself, that will be very difficult. You would need side-scan sonar to, to just map the bottom. And you're looking for something the size of a mini, you know, of a van in a, a huge uh, uh, wreck area. It's, uh, it, it, it's a Herculean task. It really is. This is a, this is a big job. Yeah. And the fact that they mustered these, these companies and international military, you name it, yeah, in the manner they did is is, is pretty impressive. For sure. Uh, yeah. Hopefully they find them. I, hopefully they, uh, you know, uh, hopes and prayers that they uh, they find these folks. And Rick Armstrong. Both- yeah, we 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 agree. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for your expertise in helping us understand what they're looking at at this hour. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Okay, now to politics. Chris Christie is on the campaign trail in New Hampshire tonight, and not mincing words about Donald Trump. Why is Christie willing to say stuff out loud that no other candidate will? My panel is going to be here to explain next. Chris Christie is on a mission to take down Donald Trump, including calling him a repeated loser. Here's how Christie phrased it in New Hampshire tonight. 
in the whole time that he was president, all we did was lose. In 2018, we lost the House. In 2020, we lost the Senate. In 2020, we lost the White House. He said he was going to repeal and replace Obamacare. He had a Republican Congress, and he couldn't get it done. He said he was going to balance the budget in four years. And he left with the biggest deficit of any president in American history. He said he was going to retire the national debt in eight years. And he added $8 trillion to the national debt in four years. Let's bring in our panel. Joining me now, we have New York Times business reporter Emma Goldberg, podcast host Josh Barrow, former organizer for Hillary Clinton, Kyvon Schroff, and Republican strategist Jason Osborne. Jason, I'll start with you. Um, is Chris Christie trying this radical honesty approach, hoping that other people will jump on board? What's the purpose of this approach he's taking? Well, I mean, if you look at everything that he's put out there from a fundraising standpoint and in some of his statements is, get me to the 40,000 donors and the 1% in the polls so I can take Trump on in, in the debates. That, I think, is his goal. I've kind of looked at Chris Christie getting into this as he is the face of a super PAC for anybody but Trump. And he's doing a very good job at it. And I think him stepping out in front on this is making folk, other candidates realize, wait a minute, we don't have to play in Trump's sandbox. And I, you know, I'm interested in hearing what you have to say. I, I loved your, your post on it. And I agree, there is a certain amount of drafting aspect to this. Although I, what I think is being lost in all this is that while these other candidates are drafting behind Christie, they're organizing. And in states like Iowa, New Hampshire, if you have the best organization, it doesn't matter what the polls say, Mm -hmm. you can still win. Hmm. And so is he giving others the permission structure to follow suit? He's giving it to them, but it remains to be seen whether they're actually going to take it or not. I mean, I think what what Chris Christie understands about this race is that Donald Trump is the front runner in this race. A race with a quasi-incumbent is always going to be about that candidate. If you're making an argument for why you have to be the nominee, you have to make an argument for why Donald Trump should not be the nominee, because that's the default outcome. And that's even more true when it's Donald Trump, who is very interesting, who is very media savvy, uh, who is willing to say outrageous things all the time. The other candidates are boring. I mean, the idea that they're going to get media attention for boring aspects of their platforms when Donald Trump out, is out there is just crazy. If you're going to be on television, you have to be talking about him. And if you're going to be talking about him, you have to be talking about why you shouldn't nominate him. So Chris Christie seems to get that. The rest of the candidates in this race, I don't really understand what it is that they think they're doing. Because whatever, whatever they're doing, it might make Donald Trump's voters less mad at them on their way to the polls to vote for Donald Trump. But none of them is articulating a theory of how they're going to convince people to not vote for Donald Trump, which you have to do before you can get them to vote for you. Emma, your thoughts? I do think we need a a model in this race for substantive engagement and transparency. And I think it's refreshing to see someone who is willing to, you know, call out Trump. And and we've seen the way Trump responds to his critics. And it's so often with belittling people, taunting them. And so to have someone who's coming into the race with a real commitment to transparency and substantive engagement is, I think, refreshing. That being said, I also think it's important not to paint too rosy of a picture. I mean, if you look at like the morning consult numbers for May, it was Trump was at like 56%, uh, DeSantis at 22%, and Christie wasn't on there. And, and we also saw, you know, Christie's last campaign go down in flames, and then he jumped on board in the Trump train. Um, so I think, I think we have to kind of hold both truths in our hands. Well, I think you also have to look at 2007. At this point in time, Rudy Giuliani was in the lead in all the polls. 
Yeah, but I think to Josh's point, right, unless we see a cascade here where Nikki Haley and DeSantis and Pence pile on and actually get something done, I kind of put this in the Lincoln Project bucket of it's really exciting to a lot of Democrats, but also, number two, you know, if it's not super effective in changing votes, is it sucking up attention and resources that could be better used with the ultimate goal in mind of actually defeating Trump? Jason, why don't they jump on? Well, because I think what you're seeing is a little, you know, they're putting their foot in the water, seeing how far they can go across, you know, across the bow of Trump, right? I mean, very tepidly. So, so. Yes, but it's much more than it was three, six, nine months ago, where everybody was petrified of saying anything about the guy. Now you actually have four or five candidates actually saying, wait a minute, I think we, we, Christie's onto something here. And as they start moving forward, they are hearing from folks on the ground that, wait a minute, these charges and these indictments, as they continue to pile on, we need an alternative. And who is that alternative, right? And to your point about all the candidates being boring, I can think of two candidates in the history or in the last 30 years that haven't been boring, and that's Trump and Obama, right? Candidates by nature and campaigns are boring. So Trump is bringing some liveliness to it, but Christie is making it a little bit more entertaining because it's continuing. The the problem with the other Republican candidates when they criticize Donald Trump for, you know, waving classified documents around at people in meetings who don't have security clearances or storing them on a stage. You know, I mean, crazy behavior. Like, you know, the, the things he had to do to get to the point of being indicted, first of all, are crazy. So there's so much material that they, that they, that they can only sort of gingerly attack on this as crazy to begin with. But then they also, they echo his own talking points at the same time they criticize him. They say, you know, the, the DOJ can't be trusted, but this indictment is very serious. The, the indictment came from the Department of Justice. If you're going out there and you're trying to tell voters they should take seriously what's in the document. You don't lead by by echoing Donald Trump's claims that you just shouldn't believe any of this stuff that comes from the government. I think Christie deals with this well, where he basically says, you know, you want to get mad at the prosecutors. You know, Trump is the one who did these things. He focuses on the substance of what's in it, whereas the other candidates, they all they all want to echo the, these, these stories that are essentially excuses for Trump to basically say, don't listen to what the Department of Justice says. I don't think that you can send that sort of mixed message if you're actually trying to take him down. Friends, thank you very much for all of those perspectives. We are following right now a developing story that we want to get to. At least three people are dead after a tornado has struck Matador, Texas. This is in the west-central part of the state. The tornado hit around 8 p.m. Central Time. Matador's mayor tells CNN that there are many injuries and many structures destroyed and that the town needs help. More than 80 storm reports issued across the central U.S. today, extreme storms. More than 20 million people remain under a severe storm threat through early Thursday. We'll keep an eye on this and update you as we get more numbers. Okay, a new report shows that some graduates of community colleges can make a lot more money than their peers with degrees from elite universities. Mike Rowe is here to say, I told you so. Next. We all know about the rising cost of four-year colleges and universities and the tens of thousands of dollars in student debt that millions of young Americans are saddled with. Well, a new report in the Los Angeles Times finds that many graduates of community colleges and technical schools actually make a lot more money than their peers from elite schools. This news will not shock Mike Rowe. And he joins me now. Mike, great to see you. You've been vindicated. You've been vindicated. If I had pearls, I'd be clutching them. I can't believe it. 
Um, so, but, but what's funny, Mike, you and I have obviously spoken about this very topic several times, but to see it in dollars and cents, just the, the you know, how it may not be worth it to go to a super expensive private university. Let me just spell it out for you. Uh, the LA Times follows this one student, Elijah Calderon, after a year-long training program at Los Angeles Trade Technical College, he was poised to earn about $105,000 annually as a power lineman. Once he becomes a journeyman in three to four years, he stands to make about $165,000 and potentially much more with overtime. They compare that to the median annual four-year after-graduation income for a Stanford University political science major $75,000. A UC Berkeley sociology major makes about $64,000. And a UCLA history major, $47,900. I mean, those are attention-getting numbers. So your reaction? Well, guess which one of those students doesn't have $200,000 in outstanding debt? That would be Elijah Calderon. Um, my foundation has trained close to 2,000 people, um, probably 30 or 40 linemen. I don't know any who are making less than six figures, and I don't know any who are walking around with a lot of debt. Now, on the negative side, they're going up telephone poles and electricity poles and, and all kinds of poles, and the wind is blowing and it's hailing, and it's it's tough work. But it's so important to... Uh, to look at the stigmas and the stereotypes and the myths and the misperceptions that keep people out of these trades. And at the same time, look at the unbelievably, oh, generous PR that our four-year institutions have been enjoying for years and years and years. I don't, I don't take any pleasure in seeing people finally come to the realization that there's more than one way to skin the cat, because for a lot of people, it feels like it's too late. But for the next generation, the time is now. We need to take an honest look at what it costs and what you can expect to make on the other side. There's another interesting report today. This is from CNN, and it finds that test scores for 13-year-olds in the U.S. in math and reading have been declining for the last decade. So it was exacerbated by COVID, but not solely by COVID. Do you have a theory on what's going on in grade schools? Oh, man. Well, that's a little out of my lane, but, but I do think the idea that the best path for the most people is the most expensive path does begin in grade school. Now, paradoxically, we, we do have giant problems in reading and writing and arithmetic. It's, it's the basics that I think are freaking people out a little bit. I don't know what to say about it. I mean, I know there's a union conversation. I know there's a funding conversation. I know there's a parental conversation. For my money, I just wish in grade school, all of the options were on the table. We've talked before about the unintended consequence of getting shop class out of middle school and high school. If I had my way, that would all go back in and it would even go in earlier, including home ec, by the way, and financial literacy and a ton of different things that you would just put under basic survival skills and not a liberal arts degree. It has to start early. And look, great teachers are always in demand. I don't want to cast dispersions. My folks both taught public school, but I have no idea what to say about my hometown in Baltimore that was graduating virtually. No students competent in math. It's horrifying. 
Yeah, and there are some kids who really take to home ec and shop a lot more than math class. And so, you know, I take your point that it's really important to give kids all of those options. Mike Rowe, as always, fantastic to see you. Uh, Mike Rowe Works is doing fantastic work and your foundation is at it as always. So thanks so much for being here. We'll see you again soon. At the risk of a shameless plug, a million dollars in work ethic scholarships coming up in two months. You can apply at the website. Fantastic. Thanks, Mike. And we're back with our panel, Emma, Josh, Kaivon, and Jason. So, Jason, on the community college front, you have a child in community college right now. Has that been a satisfying experience? Yes. And let me shout out to Hudson and his teammates at Northeast Mississippi Community College in Boonville, Mississippi. Watching us right now, I assume. Watching us right now, apparently. I'm not going to bed. Um, <laughs> but I think it has been. I mean, he's granted he's only been there for a couple weeks, but it is... You know, it, anytime somebody goes to a school, a college, whether it's a community college or a four-year school, it's an adjustment, obviously, being away from home. But I think what they are learning there and their ability right now during the summer is very limited. But coming this fall, I think there's a number of his folks, his teammates, et cetera, and other folks at that school that are going to start working on trades and learning how to be plumbers, how to be electricians, how to work in electronics and, and do AI work. And I think at the end of the day, they're going to be much more fulfilled up two years with a degree than a lot of the folks in the four-year program. My daughter's in a four-year at LSU, and, you know, she's in accounting. But there's folks that, to Mike Rose point, in liberal arts, I mean, they shouldn't make as much money as folks in the trades because those folks are few. I mean, those are many people across the board. Yeah. Emma? Yeah, you know, I think it's not a comparing people that choose a four-year program or a community college or people that choose a trade or humanities, because um, it's both and, and we need all sorts of people to run a successful country. I think what we absolutely need to agree on is that sort of the shame or stigma around people that do go straight to a trade school, I think it should be a flip. Much younger, we should start be explaining to people that that is an option for them, and that's a very lucrative, as we're talking about, and important option, too. So I think it really needs to start a lot earlier, this conversation. And that's what Mike and I were talking about because grade test scores are falling. It's not for everybody. Algebra isn't for everybody. I mean, even in grade school, you can sort of figure out if you're going to be a really academically minded intellectual kid or not. And if you're not, you don't have as many options anymore as you once did with shop and home economics. Um, Your thoughts, because I know that you've done some articles on things like this. Yeah. I also, I think with generative AI, so many industries are going to be disrupted and I think really fundamentally reshaped in ways that we really can't predict right now. And I think for a long time, there was a narrative that, you know, maybe truckers would be really displaced because of self-driving cars. Now it's like paralegals, translators, executive assistants, copywriters. I think so many professions are going to be radically destabilized by generative artificial intelligence. And so I think people are going to need to be nimble and agile across professions. And in some cases, what that means is not taking on crippling debt. You know, graduating four-year colleges with $30,000 in in debt or more, I think, really limits people in terms of how many career switches they can make. So I do think we need to open up um, 
more educational opportunities. We have 10 seconds. I mean, to stick up for four-year programs, the wage premium for people with bachelor's degrees is something like 80% compared to people who only hold a high school degree. It's substantially lower than that for a two-year program. Obviously, it depends entirely on exactly what you're studying, whether it's a two-year program or a four-year program. There are four-year degrees that won't teach you anything useful. There are two-year degrees, as Mike is describing there, that can get you into a trade that pays very highly. But a lot of people, it's a good decision they make to go to college, even if they have to incur debt, because they do get a really substantial wage premium from that four-year degree. Thank you for that other side. I appreciate Mm -hmm. that. Thank you for all the perspectives. All right, up next, the latest from the ongoing search for the missing submersible. A former commander of the Royal Navy tells us what he thinks went wrong on the sub. The window to rescue five passengers aboard that missing sub is narrowing. Joining us now is former Royal Navy Commander Ryan Ramsey. Ryan, thank you for being here. I know this is a tough question, but do you think that rescue is still possible? In all honesty, and I'm, I'm a complete realist, is that I don't think rescue is possible. Um, my thoughts go to the families, the discussions I've had with other mariners. Um, we, we all feel the same way. This is an absolute uh, tragedy, but there's a collapsing time frame with the window here and they haven't even located uh, the submersible so to deploy rescue forces uh, to find that submersible is going to be extremely difficult and, and and long so if they were to find it in the next five minutes um you think that it's not possible to bring it up i mean wh- why have you reached that conclusion well, for two reasons. Um, the first one is uh, the depth of water, so 4,000 metres. I know that they've sent some uh, remotely operated vehicles that can operate down to 6,000 metres, um, but, but, uh, which means that they may be able to locate uh, the submersible. But actually, a recovery from that depth has never been done before. And that's not to say that it can't be done. Um, it just means it takes time to be able to do it. I mean, humans are really resourceful about how they deal with um, incidents, how they deal with events, and, and they become ingenious about how they how they recover from it. But time is, there's a collapse in time frame. It's, it's not so much the oxygen that everybody talks about that's running out, but it's actually the carbon dioxide that ends up being the killer. You're breathing out carbon dioxide in a small, five people in a small submersible, all breathing out carbon dioxide with no ability to remove that carbon dioxide for this length of time becomes the problem. That's interesting because I I do keep hearing about the oxygen. And another thing that had given, I think, people hope was that the U.S. Navy had something called this flyaway deep ocean salvage system that's capable of retrieving objects or vessels from the floor at 20,000 feet. And the Titanic is just 13,000 feet down. So it it seemed as though maybe it could it could retrieve something if it were stuck in, say, the the Titanic um, wreckage. That, that's correct. But but two, two elements go against that. The first one is the Titanic wreckage. So that's a 200, uh, over 290 uh, meter ship that's split into parts. The, um, the submersible itself is 6.4 meters. So it's trying to find the submersible within that wreckage. And the second thing is, if you were going to use that, we should have deployed it days ago. Almost on the moment that it had gone missing, it needed to deploy to give it sufficient time to search the area and deploy that capability. And as I said just previously, time is totally the enemy here. Um, We're running out of time. And and to to deploy complex uh, operational capabilities to to recover these, uh, the submersible is going to take significant time.
Yeah. Well, former Commander Ryan Ramsey, we um, appreciate your expertise. We pray you're wrong, of course, uh, but we really appreciate you coming on and sharing this perspective with us. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Tomorrow on CNN This Morning, of course, there'll be continuing coverage of the search for the sub with insight from an explorer who once got stuck in the Titanic shipwreck. That starts at 6 a.m. Eastern. Thank you so much for watching us tonight. Our coverage continues now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.